Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. This month, we're devoting our show to what's happening in the northwestern province of China, bordering Pakistan. It's called Xinjiang by the Chinese, but East Turkestan by Uyghurs, a Turkic ethnic group. The United Nations says it has credible evidence that one million Uyghurs are now in re-education camps. That's about ten percent of the population. China's denied this, though officials have spoken of vocational educational facilities where petty criminals receive rehabilitation and reintegration. Satellite pictures and details scraped from the internet tell another story. One of indoctrination camps where Uyghurs are made to repudiate religion, study socialism, and eat pork. In all of this, the voices of ordinary Uyghurs are not being heard. So we've come to Adelaide, where there's a strong Uyghur community. To listen, none of the stories we've heard can be independently verified. That's the case with almost all the information coming out of Xinjiang. The people we spoke to all have family members inside China. Some have asked us not to use their names or voices, and we followed their wishes. The first person we spoke to, an imam named Abdul Salim Alim, came prepared. As he sat down, he laid out in front of him a printed list. Of the names of all his family members who are now in prison or in re-education camp. My name is Abdul Salam.、Uh, my surname is Alim. I came to Australia end of 1999, just November 1999, basically, and since then I'm here with my family. I have、uh, my wife, and I got six children, and I'm been、uh, working as a teacher in、uh, Muslim schools. Now you've bought this piece of paper, which has got a list of all of your family members who are in prison and in、yeah. camps. Tell us what it says.、And、my family is one of those families being always targeted,、uh, or we can say blacklisted, because my family is seen as a religious background. Religious, not in the sense of like you know, as they、uh, accuse us of like you know. Radical and extremist. No, it's religious. Means the person who likes to follow his religion, pray five prayers, and fast in the month of Ramadan in one, uh, in the, uh, during the year. But China, you know, the communist regime sees any religion as、uh, as a poison, as opium of nation. And even recently, they said it's a virus, mental virus. That's what it's been said by the Xi Jinping, who is the president of、uh, China now. Uh, so I got the list here, which is、uh, just to summarize it from two families: my family,、uh, my parents and my brothers, sisters, and my wife's family. From two families only, we got twelve people in camp. My sister was、uh, in camp for three or four months due to her、uh, sickness. She was released.、Uh, with that, it will be thirteen people, and five people are in prison, ranging between five to ten years life、uh, imprisonment. What crimes are they? The crime number one is because they are Uyghur. Being an Uyghur is a crime. That's how they treat us, old Uyghur people. Okay. Secondly, there are Muslims. We want to practice our religion, and that's how they、uh, interpret their way, seeing that anyone who is to do any connection with any religion is seen to be、uh, not loyal citizen. Because China now is have divided. 
the citizens also into three categories, trustworthy, uh, questionable, untrustworthy. One who practices, wants to keep his culture, his religion, and wants to live his life uh, is seen as untrustworthy. The last contact I had with my mom was uh, probably it was uh, June, uh, early June this year. And after that, disconnected. And time to time I try, today even I try to call her and it says that, you know, you're called, this uh, number is restricted. I can even try calling here. Sorry, the number you dialed has been restricted. That's what I get now. Wow. Restricted. That means it's done intentionally. Like it's not something that, you know, uh, the phone is not working, this and that. Since... Um, 2016, when I had this, like, you know, the communication became very, like, you know, I had to be very, very careful of speaking, saying what I say. At the beginning, when I start, like, you know, normally it's our culture being Muslim, the first thing we say is, Assalamu alaikum. Okay, that means peace be upon you. Very simple, straightforward thing. It's, uh, there's nothing, no one can find anything uh, radical or extremism in that. Okay, but that's, that was banned. Like, you know, my mom could not respond to me by saying, Wa alaikum assalam, which means peace be to you. So she would say, Hi, that kind of thing. which is how are you? That was the first thing she could say to me. Mm-hmm. The general thing that we use time to time, God willing, uh, see you soon, or next, uh, God willing, this kind of, like, you know, it's cultural. Whether a person is practicing Muslim or non-practicing, they all use that. That was completely, like, out of the dictionary now. People cannot use it because using that incriminates you, makes you a criminal. We... we talked to someone else who said that their telephone conversations with their family got shorter and shorter mm-hmm. because there were so many things that could not be said. Yeah, yeah. Is that the that, same with yes, you? Yes, yes, definitely. The only amount of time, like, you know, I could say, like, maybe a couple of minutes, you know, I, I won't even have a chance to ask my children to speak to my mom. Like, I said, okay, my little one, I mean, he doesn't speak really, like, very well, but, you know, I'll, she would love to listen, like, his voice, or, like, you know, saying that, Grandma, how are you? Anyone who has any connection overseas, abroad, whether you have relative or you even you have traveled once, that is more than enough proof to be used against you. And you have no right to question. Like I said, you can't use uh, a lawyer or something. There's nothing at all. Just something. It's dark age. Like it didn't happen in history, something like that. With your family, yeah. the 12 people in camps, how do you know they've been sent to camp? Okay, when I was in contact with my mum and my wife was in contact with, his, uh, with her sister, uh, that's through that we got some information from here and there. And would they tell you outright yes, they've been yes, sent they to would, camp yes. or was there a coded way yeah, of they talking? Would, they would say that they are in hospital, they're not good, they're not, their health is not good or they've gone for a trip, we don't know when they come back, kind of thing. We understand that. The painful part of it is not only that, that, even the children are suffering. Their children, uh, the oldest one, uh, the, one of the young boys, is, uh, Hamza, his name is Hamza. He was just 11 or 12 years old. And another sister of mine, his, uh, who is also in camp for almost two years, for one and a half year, there was nothing known about them, her and her husband. My mom did not have any clue whether she's in prison, in camp, or alive, or dead, nothing. She tried to go and ask. She has no right to ask. So an 11-year-old boy is in and camp? The, no, no. This, these boys, two boys from my two sisters, uh, sons, they've been taken from home and placed in a school more than 5,000 kilometers away in Shanghai in a school. It's happened to many families like that. And this is not by choice. So these are 
I don't. We have, we have no clue about what type of school they are in, what type of accommodation they have. They, they have no contact at all. They said that they have been taken to that somewhere in close to Shanghai. That's it. That's all. And based on that information, we said that they could be somewhere in school. We don't know. They could be in somewhere else. And I notice on your list, there's one family member who's looking after nine yes. children. Yes. Now it's my wife's. Uh, she has uh, four brothers, one sister, and she has also older brother, step brother. Uh, he's in prison. He's in given five and a half years prison. His name is Jalil. And her sister was given 10 years. The only charge was, there was nothing clear, but the only thing is she argued with one police officer once. Like, you know, uh, someone who is uh, hired by the government from local, they used to go around and say that, okay, they would check on people's clothing. And she was told that, you know, your clothing is not appropriate. You have to cut it. And she only said, give me some time. You know, she kind of argued with him, and then it came back to her afterwards, like the, you, you have violated the law kind of thing when the, when the letter was issued to them that, that because of the, that, she was given 10 years and she was taken from Khutan to Urumqi. She's currently in Urumqi. Her son, we met with her uh, last year, he describes her like, you know, she's in her 40s now. Her, her hair completely got gray and she lost weight. She's in terrible condition. And she sent once a letter to her, the family. They made her write the letter according to their way. Their way, the way. So she said, "I'm incredibly good, in good health. I'm fine. I'm doing well. Don't worry about me. And don't even think of taking my step. Don't go the way I went. And you know, this is a good lesson for me and for you all. Kind of this that they are using them even when they are helpless in prison. Her brothers, all of her brothers, are in camp." with their wives, except the younger one, his name is Ablimit. His wife is only safe, spared. I don't know, that that's been done also by, by, by reason, for a reason, because all the children belong to those four families are now with her, and she has to look after. Nine kids now. Nine kids. Nine kids. And she doesn't have any income. She only knows how to, like in a tailoring, she's a tailor by profession. She just does stitching a little bit here and there. And we even we tried to send some money. That's also impossible. We can't do it. I can't help staring at your list of 17 people, 12 yeah. in camps and five in prison. Yeah. And that's just your, you and your wife, your yes. immediate family, yes. just your yes, brothers yes. and sisters. And I don't know any knowledge about my uh, cousins, my uh, nephews, nieces and relatives in other cities around us. If it's happened to us, what can you say about others? It feels, I mean, the way that you tell it, it's it's like a kind of, I don't know, it's almost like some kind of catastrophe. Yeah, yeah it is. And that's why we, I'm saying, like, you know, we, we seem to be normal, but we are not. I am trying to concentrate in my work, to look after my family. And I am really taking so much responsibility on myself because I feel that I have that capacity to work, and that's why I have to do it. Every day, every night, it's, it's, it's different for me. Every, every day, morning I wake up, I wake up different. But the only thing which keeps me continuing my life is because of my trust of my God and hope that this thing which is happening is not going to last like this. There will be some way out. Whether it's someone they like it or not, there will be some way out because... I believe people have eyes, they see it.
not the international community. I would speak to the Chinese people, Chinese citizens who are in China. There are so many Chinese who have seen this happen to the Uyghur people and they've been, they've been disagreeing with it. And they don't have courage to speak out, but they see it. It's too much. And they, some of them even said, what they are doing to Uyghurs now, we fear for our children it will come back to us. And they have filled our heart with so much hatred, anger. To me, one of the most astonishing things is, and I think you've said it several times, that this can happen in the 21st century. We feel like the world has become so small that telecommunications has shrunk the world, and yet your entire clan has yeah. basically vanished. Yeah. And that, that, that technology has been used against and, you know, the, the surveillance or the, the, the facial recognition, DNA, all these other gifts of the West to the China, like, you know, use it. Okay? And we have a saying that, you know, if, if you support an evil, you are also evil. I not only claim blame China, but I also say because you are letting them use those things which are supposed to be used for the betterment of the human life, civilization, but it's been used against us, against humanity, in human way. So why shouldn't you go and speak about it and stop it, at least? Some estimates say that 10% of the population in certain areas are in the camps. But you're saying nobody, no Uyghur people <laughs> have yet... Come has come out. Come out. That's uh, the truth, because from the Uyghur people, you haven't seen anyone saying that I was in camp, I came out. We haven't seen anyone. But what is the end game? You can't just keep putting people... And that's why like, uh, they, they, they even, uh, like, you know, uh, I think, uh, cancelled, like, you know, schooling, and some of, some of the schools are not, like, you know, fun- functional now, because it's the end of the, the summer vacation, students should go, because no place, because some of the schools being used as a uh, camp. They've been building many more camps, and mosques been destroyed, okay, and they've changed, uh, turned some of the mosques into big, maybe, uh, they call it training places, but it's a re-education camp, it's like, you know, it's a Nazi-type camp. On the, some of the interviews which were done by the Radio Free Asia, some people, even the local uh, officials, said that the total population of this village is so many, the number of people left is so many. So from that you can see that some place like 20%, 30% people have been taken away. It's just such a startling reversal of direction because if you think even five, ten years back, mm. the pact was you'll grow economically and then you just put up with everything else. One thing they have also played against us, a trick, in 2015 or 2016 basically, they made people to get passports. They made it so easy. They went home, the officials used to go home, buy a home, like, you know, ask me, get passport. Even those who have no clue about passport, no clue about going abroad, like, you know, farmers, very simple-minded people, they were told, you have to get it, because it's easy. So they got it. When they got it, they were told, why aren't you traveling? And those people said, okay, why don't we travel? And they start traveling, Turkey, Middle East, here and there. And then within five, six months' time, they start confiscating the passports and keep making the record of the people who, who traveled. And those people who traveled are all in prison or in camp. And those who did not travel, they were also investigated as well. Why didn't you travel? What's your motive? Another funny thing is that if people don't go to mosque, people who've been practicing and going to the mosque before, and they stopped going to mosque, they said, why aren't you going to the mosque? If you go now, they say, why do you go to the mosque? So you don't know what to do. Yes is problem, no is problem. A couple of hours after talking, we got a text from Abdul Salim Alim. More names. 
He wrote, I forgot to mention four more members of my family who were in camps. That brings the total to 17 family members in camp, five in prison. We also spoke to a young man accompanied by two tiny children, a three-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy. His wife, their mother, is in a re-education camp. The man asked us not to use his name or his voice for reasons that will become clear. He spoke in Uyghur. What you'll hear is the voice of a translator. The whole time we spoke, the man's small son sat beside us, totally silent. He did not say a word. This is their story. Together, as a family, we were harassed by the police many times. We had to report our everyday activities to the police. And also, we were evicted from our own house. And then we had to move from house to house in a number of months' time. But every single activity of us were monitored by the police. And many times, my wife, because she was a practical Muslim and also wearing a religious attire, so basically, whenever we went, she has been harassed, interrogated, questioned, or asked to present her whole evidence of residency in China to prove that you know she does not have any other crimes. And can I ask, when did your harassment start? What year would you say you started to find things difficult? The Chinese harassments on us is not a new thing. However, as far as I can remember you know, in, in adulthood, I first traveled to overseas in 2008, and on my first return to my home in 2010, they start harassing us more heavily. Uh, like registering the paperwork for our uh, newborn children, issuing the passport or permissions or uh, any necessary documentation for us, also restricting our movements, connections with other people, and also is causing financial loss because we had to bribe them and all the time. Also, my daughter that you have seen, she did not have any Chinese household registry record because we could not get it because the government said this is you know, already beyond the, the limit of the numbers that you can have. So far, until now, she's, she does not have any Chinese residency, household registry book. And do you think they're looking for bribes? No, this is relevant to my, the, what, what currently is known as a social credit system. Okay, so because every single Uyghur's identification card has a, has a mark on it. You can't see it, but when you put insert your ID numbers, the social credit rating data system will identify who you are because I came from a religious family my father was you know, killed, murdered by the Chinese authorities therefore they listed me as a person of interest for, from far along When he was returning and he was stopped in the airport and asked to give these samples mm -hmm. of his voice and his face um, was that the first time that he'd been asked to give those things? Around November 2016, I, I went to Winjo for a business purpose. I went to, with my friend, then when we stayed in the local hotel in Winjo, first night, about 30 police, three of them in uniform and others was plain clothes. They raided the hotel room and they took us to the local police stations 
and they have already taken our digital photograph they taken the blood sample and they taken you know also the weight every every single details were taken in window far before that in urumqi also my blood sample was already taken in urumqi by the local authorities and also they forced me to install assist an app on my mobile phone which is they can track me track my activity track my voice and track my telephone conversation with anyone else so nothing is is hidden from them so basically they were chasing me 24/7 can i ask you once more to describe what he was made to do in the airport in shanghai airport i was taken into a small room where i was interviewed by video you know by someone that i cannot see but i was seen then they questioned me to return to urumqi immediately without stopping to any place after coming back to urumqi then i was taken to the to the place where my facial structure was detailed and also my voice system voice uh, program were were recorded or verified by the police so that was as i said i returned in november 2015 yes then yeah, that that harassment continued for months then in around january 2016 i was taken purposely to the police stations to present my digital photograph facial structure and the voice features and i was given a newspaper article then i was asked to read i read and they recorded everything but interestingly the journal article was written by a hong kong is hong kong chinese writer and i found that article contents was about actually is 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 forbidden or restricted in china they forced me to read and they recorded and i feared they could be planning to do some some harming to me in january 2017 because that time the, the government authorities started arresting people in my hometown which is Khoten and i was scared uh, but that time i was not quite sure that you know we can live as a family because so much things happened to us by by police so i i tend to take the first risk by myself so i came to the airport in rumchi in january 2017 I was stopped for about 15 to 20 minutes time but for no reason I was allowed to travel when the local authorities in Khotan was starting to collect the passport I did not surrender my passport by stating that I lost my passport so how did the children get out the situation became intensified between January and uh, April 2017 uh, after my departure in the way you know I kept contacting with my wife asked her to renew her passport because her passport was left only 5 months valid so because she cannot travel on that passport she approached the local passport agency to renew her passport but they say we cannot we don't renew passports all right you can just try one month after so how we are processing your applications but the situations becoming more and more intense people continuously left china in large numbers they they flee they flee but my wife and children are not able to leave at that time yet because my wife could not travel 
The only option that no, I want to take my two children because they got the passport, so it's valid. Then I contacted a, a person who was working in the travel agency. In the past, you know, I helped many Uyghurs to leave, uh, to come or travel. Then I purchased a ticket for, and for my kids together. And then through such struggle or hardship, we made them to be safely departed from China without the, the mother. So soon after, my two kids were escorted by the travel agent. The travel agent lost Oh, that person's whereabouts unknown. So your wife agreed that your children should be allowed to leave. That was okay. She was okay with that. She has sent me a picture through phone, where a deer, you know, a deer, a little deer was eaten by two uh, lions. She sent me that picture, symbolically stating that this is my situations. But it's so hard for a mother to be separated from her children. Yeah. At the moment, for, for a number of months now, I'm living with my two children. And the, the amount of torture that I'm suffering at the moment is I'm willing to be killed if my wife to be saved to be with my children. I'm willing to be killed. What can we do? I can't. I can't stand. I can't bear these situations. Something is not right in my mind, in my soul, all the time. And when did, when did you lose contact with your wife? Last year, around September, the time I, I had a occasional contact with my wife. But the complete loss of contact starts from January 2018. Through her sister, I contacted her and she said I was in hospital. That's, that's the word that she described. And then she stated, you know, I was visited by people. And what the people stating that, which is Antrim, you know, Antrim means the security agencies. Then she said, I got the malaria, that's it. You know malaria? That's, that's the disease. That means this is a very symbolic way to describe the situation of people. Because they can't say I was locked up, I was taken, I was locked up, but say, was in hospital or but she said I'm suffering malaria what was her crime what was our crime why she is taken forcibly separating her minor children from her and breaking the family I don't understand what was the reason it must be really hard to explain to your children. What do you tell them? How do you explain where their mother is? Until last year, August, September period, we still were in hope that you know, we can bring her to overseas because we were willing to spend everything that I, we have. But suddenly the contact was lost and children start asking, where is my mom? Where is my mom? I said, one month. Maybe she's coming after one month. But suddenly they, they also get used to the, the situations but become very traumatic all the time. They don't talk. Look into this child. He's not talking. He's not talking. The little girl always crying during the night. She refused to eat. Imagine. After the, the reality is, is, is become a reality. So I have to tell them that you know, your mom has been kept by Chinese authorities. And then 
little child what he can understand you know he always say alright I become old I, I learned how to drive a plane and drive a plane to get my mom back so at home and he plays the game like pretend to be driving my plane state and I'm, I'm coming mom another person we met is called Fairheart he asked us not to use his last name he comes from the oil-rich town of Karame in northern Xinjiang. His story is different to the others we heard. As we spoke, he was holding his 11-month-old daughter, and occasionally you'll hear from her as well. My father been missing, been like six months. Yeah. My mother been missing for like, uh, say, a month. My father was vice president of the Chinese Communist Party in the broadcasting company in, in Karamai. And my mother was a policewoman for 30 years. But they were holding very responsible positions within the Communist Party system. Yeah, exactly. And I was kind of, you know, like, grow up in a, like, under the red flag, you know, the Communist flag or Chinese flag. I don't know what my parents did. They, they worked for Chinese government in a very serious position for, like, more than 30 years, yeah. both of them. And... I don't know what happened to them. So when you say you lost contact with them, mm. they're just not picking up the telephone, or uh, you think they've been sent to camps, or, I mean, what do you know? I used to communicate with them, say, once a week through WeChat. They don't really talk to me directly. What they do is they're going to, you know, uh, send something on the... We have, like, friend circle things. That's how I communicate with them. Mm. So, so suddenly I didn't see anything from my father's WeChat. So I tried to contact my father. And the, 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 the thing is, when, when I called my father, his phone, like, uh, it's, I don't know why, it's, it, it directs me to Korea. Uh, then I didn't hear anything from my mom. Then I have a brother. I didn't hear from him since 2014. And uh, his wife was in the military. Uh, we didn't heard from her since last November. And they have a kid, uh, uh, a son, four years old. So I have the cousin. She used to look after my nephew. She always uploads something and try to give some information to me. And it, she uploaded my nephew's photo said, no, only you and me, you know, I will look after you for four for hours. Then, then I made sure, you know, like, now no, my nephew has, has no grandparents, mm -hmm. so she is the only one, but she's only 16 or 17. It's surprising to me that people w who are Communist Party members apparently are disappearing. Yeah. I mean, are you hearing of other people in your parents' circles who have disappeared in the same way? Yeah, I don't know them personally, but we have like you know like doctors, scientists, uh, even pop singers been missing. For Chinese government, they don't need any excuse or you know the, you, you have to commit some kind of crime. You Uyghur, that reason is more than enough, you know, for them to come and uh, put you in these um, re-education camps. But I mean, it's extraordinary because Karame is kind of the oil capital. Of yeah. northern Xinjiang, not southern Xinjiang. It's not a Uyghur majority town. Yeah. It doesn't have any real history of 
of incidents that uh, you know you're not religious people and yet you are just as much a target as a religious person in Khotan. Exactly. The karamai in Uyghur uh, means uh, black oil. So karamai got the highest GNP in China. It's five times more than uh, Shanghai and six times more than Beijing. So we should be the richest people in, in China. But it doesn't work that way. You know, people, especially Uyghur state, uh, don't benefit anything from, from the oil that they got. My parents, especially my father, he's not religious at all. I don't remember at, even once he was praying in, my, in his life, even once. I don't remember. Many of the other people that we've spoken to have come from religious families or they've come from families who've travelled. Did your parents travel? Yeah, my father did lots of travel with Chinese government. He'd been to the state, he'd been to Europe, uh, Japan, Korea, and the government pays for it. So at the beginning, when people started to kind of disappear, did you think that your parents would be protected because of their position and their jobs? I did, a little bit. But even now, uh, you know, I, I, maybe that's, the, you know, because I'm, I'm human, that that's how we, you know, comfort ourselves to think that way. Even though if my parents in re-education camp and the, they will treat them, you know, a little better than others. You know, like, I would say all the policemen in Karamai knows my mother because she's been here for like 30 plus years. And they know my father because my father was in the military. He worked as a policeman for five years. Then he got this job in, in broadcasting company. That's the highest rank level that Uyghur person can become in China, the vice president or, or vice chairman of the Communist Party. Mm. And he, he also disappeared. You know. It got dark as we spoke, but we noticed one couple waiting in a side room. Others came and went, but they waited. Finally, after hearing so many stories, we had a chance to hear theirs. Their names are Miasa and Dolkin Ablat, and they have four children. Miasa moved here in 1985, Dolkin in 2002. Dolkin mainly spoke in Uyghur, with his wife translating. They started by telling us that his family is based near the Kazakh border, in a place called Emin County in Tachang Prefecture. That's uh, uh, because where we're from, yeah. it's a little bit um, a bit further than the other more central like Khotan district. So to to our district, the effects of what's happening okay. came a little bit yeah, later, six probably months, six yeah. months later. So until November, we didn't really realize that there was anything happening. His younger brother Almas from Urumqi, he lives in Urumqi with his family. And he works there as well. He rang and he told my husband, um, please don't ring us anymore, call or contact um, Dad or any of us because um, it's not good here. And that was it. That was the last time we heard from his brother. And then what about the rest of his family? My husband is just sort of, he's struggling at at the moment to deal with everything. It's very hard because um, most of his family members, we haven't heard from um, his mother, my mother-in-law, for about eight, nine months. All right, so once um, the, the November phone call, then after that, my husband, we sort of knew that Almas was okay just from his WeChat posts. And then in uh, December, late December, probably around December 27th, 2017, it was his last post. Um, my husband got a bit concerned and we were worried, so we tried ringing a few times. He would say, it's, 
it's you know Dolkin ringing, they would hang up, so we wouldn't be able to talk to them. So we did manage to get through on one occasion, and um, when he rang, he pretended that he was Almas to find out what was happening to one of his aunties, and he said, it's Almas, and they said, oh, when did you get out? Where are you? What's happening? We were like, we were shocked, and then before we could say anything else, the phone just cut off. Mm. So we realised that he was in one of the re-education concentration camps. Then um, we have another, my uh, sister-in-law, his youngest um, mm. sister, she lives in Khe, uh, Khashqa, Poskam Pos- Pos- Precinct in that region and she used to post things on WeChat too. She posted something on WeChat saying, you know, about my uh, my father-in-law and my brothers-in-law and saying, you know, that they, that she hasn't seen them. Um, she said, you know, I can't make it in time to see you, Father. I'm getting scared, you know, what's happening and all this. And she was quite emotional. After that, she would comp- she'd put posts up saying that she misses or her brothers and her father and, you know, why didn't they tell her that she would, you know, have to be on her own and she's not coping well, she can't deal with it and then she also posted things about um, being separated from her husband because she's married too with a son and then at that time around March we realised that all his brothers and um, her sister's husband had and my father-in-law, they had all been taken in. So how, how many people is that? At the moment, there's six um, immediate family members. It seems like almost all the men have disappeared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too long ago, my husband um, heard from a credible source that that uh, most of the young boys. years. From 15 years, uh, 50 years gone. In Dervision, from 15 to 50, they're basically all gone. They've been taken in. Not 90, no, 90% gone. 90% of the men. And uh, he, I asked just my friends and uh, he, uh, oh, books. No, no, no. And he asked because that. he grew up in Dervision and um, he was asking about his close friends and he's got the names of the people that have um, that are confirmed to have been Taken. 28. Oh, 28. You have been collecting the names of people who you can confirm have been sent to camp. Is that yes. correct? Mm. We, uh, we did do that because um, recently our community has been trying to raise more awareness about the situation in East Turkestan, what's happening to the oils, and we recently submitted a petition to, to the Australian Parliament House, which was discussed just a couple of days ago. We wrote it down, and there's 28. Mm-hmm. Did Twenty-eight people definitely confirmed that have been taken in that mm-hmm. he knows personally. Too much. Young people, all young. All the young all people. Young. So it's basically all the boys who all you boys. who you went to school with. Yes, yes, All of them. All the people he basically yes. went to school with, grew up with, mm-hmm. they've all been taken in. Mm-hmm. This is even people who are religious, not religious. Yeah. Is there any? This is some religious. Some uh, thinking, uh, dance, uh, music, musician. Some of the teachers. Um, it's across the whole, the whole, the whole field. Like there's no discrimination here. Probably at the start, like when it started a couple of years ago, maybe it was because someone was, they were being a bit too religious, or you know they had the beard or they were wearing scarf. But now it's non-discriminatory. Basically, it's come down to if you're Uyghur, you get taken away. It's just a matter of time. Everyone is living in fear, like. For his mum too, she's 
Her health is not that good. She's, you know, over 60. My father-in-law is nearly 70 years old. Uh, he has uh, diabetes that he needs um, insulin injections for. He worked for the Chinese government for over 40 years. All are working for government. All these people on here, most of them are working. Most, most, most of them. Most of the people that um, we heard have been taken, they all had stable jobs. They were working um, for basically the community, the government there. In 2008, when we visited, um, the the police officers would constantly come and interrogate my husband, asking, you know, questions, and they were saying to him, like, you know, we want you to, when you go back, um, sort of work for us as a spy, basically. They said, communicate what the community there is doing. And then um, where they're working, their address, uh, what sort of job they're in, whether in they're in like government jobs or they work for private companies, whatever it is, we want you to sort of pass that information on to us. I mean, I wanted to know more of what it feels like now to be overseas when this is happening and how you deal with that kind of thing. At the moment, basically, this is what's on our mind. When we get together, all we, all we discuss is how can we find a, an avenue of help, uh, get someone to listen, be able to get someone to take some sort of action. Because at the moment, um, it, it's frustrating for us because there's so many people um, being taken into these camps like when you say it, it sort of seems a little bit unbelievable to people that don't know about our situation because how can someone just simply be taken away for nothing? There has to be a reason. Like in any country, there are laws and regulations. You can't just take someone away without saying what the charge is and they have some sort of avenue legally to have someone sort of speak up for them. But at the moment in our homeland, unfortunately, this is not available to um, any of the oils. I also have a, a person I know, I, I can't say their name because of what could happen to them, but they told me as well, at the moment there is surveillance basically within like probably 50 metres to 100 metres, there's constant surveillance, your phone gets checked, you get body searched, uh, the women are not allowed to wear scarves, you have to take them off, uh, you're not allowed to enter mosques, uh, you're not allowed to... look. Um, fast or anything like that and everything is monitored who you speak to this person I spoke to they said they had someone from the government within their home to stay with them just to make sure obviously to be monitored to make sure that they were not having any contact or they were not doing anything that the government didn't want them to do when you describe it it's a almost like a war on Uyghurs a war mm. on families a war on Uyghur culture is that how you see it? Uh, what's happening in East Turkestan right now is very, is very um, dangerous because um, the Chinese government, that what they're doing to the oils is something that they could easily happen to others. This is how it starts. Like, it's happened previously in history and everyone said, uh, you know, it's never to happen again. It's happening now in the 21st century. There are millions of oils in concentration camps the international community knows about it. Everyone knows about it. Because we have um, the internet, social media, digital technology, everything is very advanced now. Everyone is aware of this. But um, because of China being such a superpower and having such an influence within the international 
community in regards to economic and trade. Unfortunately, at the moment, it seems like the Uyghur people are paying for it with their lives because China is basically silencing all the other countries, the international community, everything, just with the amount of investment, trade, whatever it is that you want to call it. They're using this sort of as hush money, basically to say, look, um, just turn a blind eye to what's happening to oil. So let's not talk about that. And they've even got the new initiative, the One Belt, One Road initiative. So at the moment they're trying to shift the, as much as they can the awareness away from the human uh, rights abuses and violations against the Uyghur people and the mass concentration camps by putting the international uh, community's um, attention, bring it back to what's happening like with the developments and all this. And we're, we're suffering for that. To bring it back to a personal level, how does it affect your life here now? I mean, does it, what are the impacts on your, your, your family and your relationships with each other? It's, it's very hard. It takes a toll. Like, it's very hard to put it into words. How do you deal with something like that? Because for us, we get frustrated because our hands are tied. I mean, we want to do so much. We're like, we're screaming for help, but our screams are falling on deaf ears. There are, there are steps being taken recently with the motion in government in the Parliament House about the Uyghur people because we wrote letters to our local members of parliament, to our federal members, but um, nothing is being done. And because every minute that's passing, for us, it's our family members. It's like if, imagine you wake up, one, you go to school, you come home, your dad is missing. Well, wouldn't you ask, Mum, where's dad? Where's he gone? What for? Even like a criminal is afforded more rights than our oil people are, and they, they're not guilty of anything just because of maybe connection to a family member overseas, like having someone in Australia, or for some ridiculous reason, like they travelled to a foreign country, which the, the Chinese government themselves gave them permission to by give, allowing them to have a passport, giving them the visas, and letting them go there for sometimes even like a sporting sporting people, like someone my, from... My, my neighbour is Irfan. Irfan, the, the soccer player. Soccer player. He, he's actually, he was, he's a neighbour of my um, husband, back from Durjan. He went overseas with, like, a, a, you know, with the soccer team. He wasn't there on his own free will doing something that was, you know, against the government. He was there in support of the, the soccer team, doing something to raise awareness for the Chinese, you know, sports and all that. And then when he came back now, he, he's suffering for it. It's disbelief. Like I don't know how to sometimes put it into words. It's just ridiculous what's happening at the moment. We can't talk. We're not allowed to speak to them. We're not allowed any communication, any link to, you know, some someone outside or someone making a phone call or whatever it is. They're just looking for like the tiniest excuse, something just to, just to get as many oilers put into the camps as they can. Many thanks to our guests. In our next episode, we'll be talking to scholars of the region for background analysis. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, Omni, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was recorded in Adelaide and edited by Andy Hazel and Louisa Lim. 
with support from the Australian Centre for China and the World. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, background research by Julia Bergen, and our cartoons and GIFs are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.